everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Anne Swinfen, the author of The Testament of Mariam, the fourth of her ten novels published to date. Last month we talked about Johann Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press. Anne Swinfen operates smack in the middle of the current publishing revolution, so one of the topics we'll cover today is what convinced her to leave traditional publishing and form her own press. We'll also chat a bit about This Rough Ocean, her most recent novel. The Testament of Mariam is an exquisite, at times elegiac, retelling of the gospel story from the perspective of Jesus of Nazareth's younger sister. When we meet her, Mariam is an old lady living near Massilia, modern-day Marseille. She has just learned that another of her older brothers, whom most of us know as James, has died. She is the eye of the passage that follows. Chapter 1 Today I had word that my brother Jacob is dead. I have not seen him for more than thirty years, and now he has been gone three without my knowing. Our last meeting was brief and bitter, in the village house where we both were born. We shouted at each other over our father's bowed head before I left, putting that land behind me forever and the whole of the middle sea between us. And now he is the last of my brothers to die. I watch a woman, the coppersmith's wife, on the other side of the square as she catches hold of her son's hand and drags him away. He had taken a step or two towards me, where I stand with my jar beside the village well, but she keeps him at a distance. Turning away, she makes the sign of the horns behind her back. What is the coppersmith's wife to me, that I should care what she thinks? I tip the bucket to fill my jar and lift it on to my head, a movement as familiar as breathing. I remember how I used to lean over the well at home, when I was sent by my mother to fetch water, hoping to see my face reflected. But the shaft was deep, and the sun behind my head so dazzling, that all I could see were dancing stars of light in the dark unknown. And as I walked home with the cool clay jar balanced on my head, the stars still spun before my eyes, making my head dizzy and my steps faltering, so that the water slopped and splashed over my supporting arm and soaked the shoulders of my tunic. My mother chided me for wasting the precious water, chided me for daydreaming when there was so much work to be done. They all chided me as lazy and useless, all the family except for my father, quiet and withdrawn in his workshop, and my eldest brother, Yeshua. When I was very small, it must be my earliest memory, I think, I was curled up once in the straw of the goat shed, sobbing with fear and horror. I had done something stupid, I suppose, broken a cup or torn my clothes, the kind of accident I was always having, for I was a clumsy child. Jacob had turned on me, lashing out with the flat of his hand and sending me sprawling. Spawn of the devil, he shouted. Perhaps it was his cup I had broken. You care nothing for others. You will suffer for it all the days of your life. I fled in terror for the goat shed, my usual place of refuge. Jacob was always so sure of himself, like those ancient prophets, whose words were read to us by the elders in the village synagogue, the Kanishta, on the Sabbath. Even burrowed deep into the hot summer scent of the straw, pricked by sharp stems and bitten by fleas, I could not escape my fate. By the time Yeshua found me, I was gasping uncontrollably for breath, my whole body shaking and drenched with sweat. And now, please join me in welcoming Anne Swinfen. Hi, Anne. I'm so looking forward to talking with you today. Thank you for agreeing to the interview. Well, thank you for inviting me, Carolyn. It's very nice to talk to you. So tell us a bit about yourself, uh, starting with how you became a novelist and what prompted the early books before The Testament of Marian. 
Well, I'd always wanted to write from childhood onwards, but I had a very large family, five children. I was rather busy bringing them up and uh, teaching in the university and doing freelance journalism and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was really only when the last one went to university that I had time to sit down and write at full length, although I'd published nonfiction before that. Um, I then published three novels with Random House. They were contemporary novels, at least they were disguised as contemporary novels, but they all had a sort of historical layer because historical fiction was what really interested me. So I did those three for Random House. And it was a mixed experience. I had a lovely editor at a Random House and a lovely agent. Unfortunately, my agent retired and my editor went off on maternity leave. She was supposed to come back, but she didn't. Then there was a big um, hoo-ha in Random House itself. The uh, publisher who had taken over as my temporary editor uh, lost her job and everything kind of fell apart. So I had a big hiatus in my career at that point. Uh, then I tried to get back in with Marion, which was a, a rather different sort of book. I had a new agent by this point. Um, and, well, we'll pick that up with, with Marion. Um, but I didn't, in the end, go back to traditional publishing. Yeah, one of the issues with Marion, as I understand it, is that it came along at the wrong time, in a sense. Um, your agent loved it, but she couldn't sell it. Um, and people were saying that... Uh, Nobody wanted to read historical fiction, which happens every so often. I don't know why, because I've been around reading for a long time now, and I've never known a time when I didn't want to read historical fiction and other people didn't either. But in any case, um, as a result, you ended up self-publishing this novel, and um, but this was not yet Shaken Oak Press. Is that correct? No. Um, what happened was it was right at the height of the recession that I had Mariam ready for sale, and my new agent was hugely enthusiastic about it, and so were some editors, and she thought that we were going to have a, an auction. It had got to that point where we were on the point of having an auction between three editors at three publishing houses. But then the money men stepped in, and they were the ones who said, oh, we can't sell historical fiction, nobody wants to read historical fiction, although the editors were very keen. But these days, of course, they're completely um, under the thumb of the, the accountants, so it all fell through, and although my agent tried with a number of other publishers, she was getting the same response, and as a result, she kind of lost interest in historical fiction. So you know, when I offered her other historical novels, which I then wrote after Mariam, I was getting nowhere. So I published Mariam through a kind of subsidized scheme, subsidized by the um, English Arts Council, and uh, that meant at least it was available, and... I had sold a bit. I have a launch party and sold quite a lot of copies, and it kind of trickled along. But it wasn't a very, you know, sensible way to do it. It, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't giving me any control really over the way I published. So I then tried again with an editor I knew. This would have been um, 2013, and she was very keen. By this time, I'd written Flood. And she was very keen on Flood and also on the Christobal book. At this point, I wasn't thinking of reissuing Marion. Um, but she said I should rewrite the Christobal books as a series, and she thought she could get me a contract with her publisher. I probably better not mention which publisher it was. 
they then appointed a new chief, chief executive who wasn't keen on historical fiction. We're back to this point again. And um, the whole thing fell through. So in August 2013, I was on the point of having a contract, and it all fell through. I potted around for the rest of that year until I got so fed up that I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to really properly self-publish. So the beginning of 2014, just over a year ago, I decided to set up Shake and Oak Press, which is really just me, um, and to reissue the books that had been published by Random House, which by now are out of print and the rights had reverted to me, to reissue Mariam with a um, fresh cover, because you've seen a lovely cover by Jane, um, and a, a nicely laid out, better laid out than it had been before, and gradually to publish the other books that I had written and continue to work on the Christabel series. So that's where I got to with Shaken Up Press, and that's just over a year ago. And before we talk about the books, which I do want to talk about, um, what is that experience like for you? Uh, you know, you're basically wearing probably not even two hats, but, you know, four or five as the, the author and the publisher and the um, editor. They, your covers are indeed gorgeous. Uh, Jane Dixon-Smith is a wonderful cover designer. Uh, do you hire a bunch of people to help you get the books out or are you doing it pretty much all, of, all by yourself? Mostly by myself. I have actually worked as an editor before. Um, one of my many jobs, I was a technical editor for, I worked for an international computer company. I ran their, their technical, um, author division for the north of England and Scotland for about five years. And that involved wearing a number of hats also. But one of the things was that I acted as editor for the team working under me. So I had quite a lot of experience in editing. So I do my own editing, mm-hmm. and I quite like uh, doing the formatting because I enjoy the appearance and the lookout. You know that, the, the way it looks on the page. Um, so things like drop caps or special fonts for the chapter headings and things like that. I like to do that myself. Uh, working with Jane, I have very definite ideas about how I want my colors to look, and Jane and I work extremely well together because she can take what I'm suggesting and turn out a cover, which is what I want, which is ideal. Mm-hmm. She has my covers. Um, a few of my reissues were, were done by, by other people until I found Jane. But she's done all the, the Christabel series. She's done um, Mariam. She's done This Rough Ocean. She's done the reissue of uh, A Running Tide. That's all of them. And with the, particularly with the Christabel series, what we wanted to work for was a, a kind of look for the whole series. So uh, I wanted a, a kind of parchment-looking background. And then we found this face, which <laughs> um, I'm not sure if you've seen those covers, but the, the person on the cover, I won't tell you who it is, but it's a nice face that's kind of ambiguous. Um, and that appears on every one, and there's some sort of fancy corners at the top. And then what we do is we put at the bottom a contemporary illustration, which is usually a line drawing uh, dating from the, the late 16th century. And then at the top, a colored image, which somehow links with the story. And it's great fun each time with these covers, finding the appropriate line drawing and the little colored illustration to go at the top. So the back covers have, have this scroll on and the verb is written on the scroll 
and then there's a, a blob of red wax, and on the blob of red wax is an impress of uh, my signet ring with the Swinton crest on it. And that's a little private joke, but it effectively says, I wrote this. <laughs> that's why it's on the, on the blob of red wax. So we put that on the back of all those. So those ones we, we developed as a series, whereas the other ones obviously are one-offs, um, Jessamine and Mary and Running Tide and This Rough Ocean. But again, I, I have the ideas, and then Jane and I work together to bring them to fruition. I have seen the Cristobal covers, actually. They're very lovely. And tell us a little bit about the Cristobal series itself, and perhaps about Flood, which is also a, a historical novel, before we get really seriously into Mariam. Well, um, let's think about Flood for a moment. It's just a, a one-off book, but I've had responses from readers wanting a sequel, so that may well turn into a series. Um, I've got an idea for, for a sequel. It's, I came upon the information about that when I was doing the research for this rough ocean. All these things tie together, you see. And I found out about the Fenlanders defending their, their lands and livelihood against a lot of unscrupulous developers who were trying to come into the East Anglian Fens, drain what they thought was useless land, which it wasn't at all, and uh, just taking possession of common land. And the Fenlanders fought back. And what was interesting about it was that a lot of the women were leaders of these people who fought back. So that was a part of the idea. Um, what of this girl, Mercy, who, is, who becomes involved as a leader of these, these resistance people. Um, and it was also the period, this, in the middle of the 17th century, slap bang in the middle of the Civil War, was also the period when Matthew Hopkins, the witch hunter, was going about East Anglia, um, finding people guilty of witchcraft, Totally innocent people. Hundreds of people were killed at his uh, prompting, who were no doubt all of them innocent. And that also coincides with the same period. There was also um, licensed iconoclasts, if you can believe it, people who were actually licensed to go and smash up the churches. So all these things were going on at once. I thought it was an absolutely fascinating period. So that's what lay behind Flood. Um, and then the Christoval series, I wrote originally a very long book, which was called The Secret World of Christoval Alvarez. And it was this one that this editor friend said to me, covered about 10 years, this is too long, um, take it apart and write a series instead, which is all very well. You don't just chop a book up and say in the first 10 period pages, but like book one and so on. Um, it really means writing whole new books. But she was right. I mean, it's been really successful as a series, and the first book covers just the first year of that original book, uh, 1586, and then the second book covers uh, 1587 to 8. Uh, that's, that's the Armada book, The Enterprise of England. Then the third uh, covers the so-called counter-Armada, when the English Navy <laughs> went to Portugal with the intention of restoring the claimant to the Portuguese throne, and also to attack the Spanish navy. It was totally, totally disastrous. So that was in the early part of 1589. In the middle of 1589, I have the book Bartholomew Fair, which is based on incidents that happened when this expedition returned, and a lot of the men, well, the men were not paid at all, and they became very angry, and the whole group marched on London with the intention of demanding their money, or else they would smash up Bartholomew Fair and pay themselves out of the goods of the fair. 
So that was the, the fourth book in the series, and I'm now working on the fifth one, which takes place in the latter part of 1589 and into 1590, which is getting towards the end of Walsingham's life. So she was quite right, in fact, because there was all the material there to write a whole series, and I had really tried to cram too much into one book. So she was right, and I'm quite prepared to give her the credit for that. That's good. I think you were going to read us a, a passage from Christoval to give us a sense of that story. Okay, well, I'll, I'll read we'll start the first page in a bit. January, 1586. I was washing alembics when he came. Often in the months and years that followed, I wondered how things might have turned out had I been away from home. My father had been summoned to one of his private patients, and I'd pleaded to go with him to the great man's house, for I'd never even stepped over the threshold of the mansion in the Strand. But the winter had been severe, we were short of many remedies, and I must stay at home and wash the alembics so that we might spend the evening distilling. I did not like being alone in the house, with the dark afternoon heavy in the sky outside, and chill draughts plucking at the back of my neck, like the unforgiving fingers of the dead. The old timbers of the house swayed and creaked and moaned in the wind. My father entrusted the delicate glass vessels so costly to replace to no one but me. His own hands had grown unsteady with age, and our maid, Joan, could shatter an earthenware pitcher on the far side of the room merely by looking at it. So I'd heated water over the fire until it was hot to the touch but bearable, and poured it into the big basin, which was used only for the instruments of our profession. From a pot on the windowsill, I scooped out half a handful of the grey soap, the consistency of soft cheese, and stirred it into the steaming water. It was cold in the kitchen, and for a moment I closed my eyes and enjoyed the warmth, soothing my hands and the smell of the lavender and rosemary oils I mixed with the soap. Then I lowered the first alembic into the water and wiped it over with a rag dipping and pouring until the tubes and nozzles were clean. Since free of soap, for no foreign body must contaminate our remedies, which stood draining on the wooden table while I picked up the next one. The row of four was drying on the table as I lifted the heavy basin across to where my father had contrived a drain to run out through the wall and empty into the street outside. The sudden rush of water sometimes gave passers-by a soaking. It was just as I poured the water away that I heard the running footsteps approaching our door. I glanced around fearfully. Joan was away at the market, and my father would not return for an hour or more. There was nowhere to hide. The water pouring out of the house would have given away my presence, and I lit a candle the better to see my work, even though it was not yet dark outside. The room was illuminated like a play at one of the indoor playhouses, the candlelight reflected off the glass vessels, gleaming warmly on the dark oak of table and benches, chest and cupboard. I had no time to retreat to the inner parlour. We do not readily open our doors to strangers, people of my nation. I saw a blur as someone ran past the window, and he was pounding on the door and crying out something incoherent. So I must answer. On such trivial matters may a life turn to follow a new road to heaven or hell, who knows? All I knew at the time was that I did not want to answer, and I wished my father were there. When I opened the door, the boy blew in on a gust of bitter January air, 
bringing with him the blood stench of Smithfield Market round the corner and the piteous cries of the beasts awaiting slaughter in the shambles. I had to lean my shoulder against the door to close it, for it was a poor thing of nailed boards that bellied in the wind like a ship's sail. All the while I struggled with it, he was doubled up, gasping, his hand pressed against his side. Poison, he cried at last. I looked him up and down. He was flushed with running, a boy about the same age and height as I, but with a breadth in the shoulder that foretold he would grow taller while I would not. You're not poisoned, I said brusquely. You run too far, and overtaxed your strength. Oh, that's very intriguing. Um, well, tell us a little bit about Christabel as a person. Um, there's quite a bit that's indicated even in that opening, but um, what, what, is his, what is the major problem that he's going to be tackling in the series? Well, uh, Christabel is a, a Portuguese refugee, um, one of the so-called new Christians. They were the people who were forced to convert from Judaism to Christianity um, under the Portuguese government, under the influence of the Spanish government. Then when Spain invaded Portugal in 1580, they brought the Inquisition with them. And the Inquisition had no truck with new Christians. They didn't believe they were genuine Christians at all. And they were questioned by the Christian Inquisition, and many of them were killed in auto da fe. Uh, others were forced to repent and were scourged through the streets. And Christopher and Christopher's father managed to escape on a ship to England and ended up in London. The father is a former professor of medicine at Coimbra University, which is, is a famous medical school in uh, in Europe, one of the best medical schools in Europe. And they work as doctors in St. Bartholomew's Hospital. So that's the, the background to it. But of course, the people in my nation are these refugees who are very nervous, even when they're in London, of how safe they will be. There's a certain amount of anti-Semitism in London at the time. Um, Christabel is very gifted in mathematics and is therefore coerced into becoming a code breaker in the intelligence service of uh, Sir Francis Walsingham. So the, the story goes on from there. Christabel becomes an agent in Walsingham's service, but also continues as a doctor, working first in St. Bartholomew's and later in St. Thomas's. So there's a, you know, several different strands there. And the boy who turns up there is actually a boy actor, one of those, at this point, who is playing uh, women's parts. So he later, as he gets older, is into adult parts. That's <laughs> Great. So lots of lovely books to, uh, for people to read once they get hooked by Mariam. So let's talk about Mariam itself for a moment. What made you decide to write this particular story? Well, I've always been intrigued by the fact that behind all the encrustations of the church over 2,000 years and the, the doctrine and the writings and the hierarchy and so on. Underneath it all, right at the beginning, it was a real man. And this real man was a peasant living in Galilee from a peasant family. And, you know, it, it intrigued me. How did this, this man from such a strange background become so potent in a, in a time when Rome was ruling the, what they call Palestine, the province of Palestine? And Galilee, as I discovered in doing my research, Galilee was a center of revolt and trouble. They were known as troublemakers, the people from Galilee. Um, so I, I thought it'd be interesting to look 
really in a secular way, rather than a religious way, and who the people were who were behind all of this, which has accumulated since in the 2,000 years. And I thought, if you were his family, how would you react? How would you react? I thought, well, particularly Marion walked into my head, really, ready for If you were his sister, can you imagine being a sister of such a man? What would you believe? Would you really think he was divine? Or would you think, wait a minute, he's, he's gifted, he's very clever, he's charismatic. Come on, he has the same father as I have. He's my brother. So I started from that point. Um, and I did a lot of research into the period, and there is a lot of material, both historical and archaeological, more than I had realized about the times. I did actually start as a classicist, so I knew quite a lot about the Roman Empire. So that, that was all familiar to me. But I found a, a series of book by some, books by someone called Geza Vermes, awkward name. He's a Hungarian. He was a Hungarian Jew. But his family converted to Christianity when Nazism began to rise up. And he was training as a priest, as a Catholic priest, when the uh, Second World War broke out. Somehow, I don't quite know how, he got out of um, They were in, in Israel. He got out of there and got to first of France, where he did some of his training, got out of France before it was invaded, ended up in England, um, and was for a time a Catholic priest. Then he reverted back to Judaism, got married, became an academic, and um, had something called the, I don't remember the exact title, but it's a sort of school of, of um, biblical studies or something like that at Oxford. I mean, he must be getting on a bit now. But um, he has written a number of extremely interesting books, because, and he has this d- double perspective, you see. He's got both the Jewish background and the Christian background, and he's written a great deal about the, the period of, of the foundation of Christianity. So that, that was fascinating. He found a lot of information there. And then, of course, there's, there's all the contemporary records. You know, this is Josephus, who wrote the, the history of the Jews, which under the Roman, when he, was, he lived under the Roman Empire. Um, and then there's archaeological evidence and so on. And I, this whole thing about the, the Galilee being a, a source of rebellion is quite new to me. There were actually predecessors called Jesus who led revolts in Galilee, which is something I didn't realize before. So you can see why he was treated with considerable suspicion when he was uh, leading a band into, into Jerusalem. So anyway, it started with all that, and... It almost dictated itself the story because I was thinking about his sister having grown old, having escaped into a different part of the empire because it wasn't safe for her to stay where she was. Um, and then the other thing, that other element that came into the story was I came across the Gospel of Judas. I don't have you heard of that? I have heard of it. I haven't read it though. Well, it was fairly recently rediscovered uh, amongst texts. There's a whole number of texts which were rediscovered in Egypt. They'd been preserved by the sand and so on. And this is one of the early Gospels. Because you have to remember that, of course, the New Testament was just, was just the approved version. And there were these various other Gospels which they decided not to include. And the Gospel of Judas maintains that Judas had to hand Jesus over to the authorities in order to fulfill the prophecies. So I thought, well, that's an interesting line. Um, 
let us suppose that Judas was actually a close friend and was obliged to do this as part of an agreement between the two young men. And he doesn't want to do it, but he is obliged to do it. And then he tries to get out of it, as you've seen the way I've dealt with it in the book. That he, he tries, he says, right, I've done it now. Now we're going to escape. And uh, Yeshua, Jesus, refuses, refuses to do so. Um, now, when I wrote the book, I, I was a little nervous about publishing it because I thought some people may find this very offensive. You know, how dare I write this about you know, putting words into the mouth of Jesus or Yeshua, using his Aramaic name. Um, and I was, say, I was quite nervous how people would react. And the curious thing is that I have had letters and conversations with a number of, of clergymen, and they've all been very positive. And one of the main things that they have said is that they have always been bothered in the past by the story of Judas. And the way I've interpreted it makes it all suddenly make sense to them. And that's, I find that quite astounding. It is, um, but I have to say, I had the same reaction. I mean, I, I think that the story hangs together as a story, which is its responsibility as a novel and your responsibility as a novelist. But I also, one of the things I particularly liked about this, I've read a fair amount of biblical history and so on, because in my day job, I'm a textual historian, and that is all based on... Um, Biblical studies. Uh, so even though I'm working in 16th century sources, which themselves are, you know, laden with biblical references, the actual methods of studying manuscripts are derived from biblical studies. And so I've read a lot. I'm very interested in the historical Jesus and I've read a bunch of biographies and so on. But one of the things that is almost always missing in those books is how you get from this person to Christianity. Mm. You know, what was it about him? You know, you can say he was, you know, he was a Galilean peasant and, and he was living in this, uh, subtle time and the rest of it, but it doesn't give you the sense of him as a personality, um, which he must have had. I mean, there's this clear personality in the gospels that comes through all of the, the, um, recasting that's necessary to tell the stories as as the good news of the resurrection you know and uh, but your book brings that out because it really portrays him as a person and it it really gives a sense of how he drew people and how he influenced people and you know how the people around him related to him which i think is really essential to understanding how you get from this person who lived and and died to the focus of this later religion, which is really an enormously important story, I think. Yeah, I think you know, he must have been a very charismatic man, I think. Mm -hmm. Not everyone, of course, liked that. Not only the authorities, but, of course, there is the incident when he comes back um, to his own village and is asked to to um, speak in the Kanishta, and he, he draws out a few parallels and people say, is he, is he comparing himself with, with Isaiah, you know? And the village gets very angry. This is all actually in the New Testament. And they turn on him in his own village. These are the people he grew up amongst, the young men he, who you know, he went to school with and so on, because there was a school in the village. Um, and he has to flee. So, you know, there's that aspect. And then when he's, not long afterwards, he's established himself in Capernaum, and is preaching there, 
his mother and brothers come and try and fetch him home, and they say he's mad. And that's in the New Testament, too. They're not the bits that we normally have our attention drawn to. But he was regarded as mad by his mother and brothers, and he wasn't liked by his fellow villagers. I think that is a very interesting aspect, that, you know, um, no man is a hero at home. And he, he, he had this powerful, obviously powerful personality, but it was resented by some people. Um, and then another interesting aspect, I think, is the way he had these women followers. Because there were women, the women that I use in the book, I mean, apart from Mariam, who's fictional, the other women in his following are all actually attested in the writings. So he did have women followers. It was only later in the church that women were kind of pushed into the background. But at the beginning, there were all these women. So I think that's an interesting aspect as well. Uh, of course, the authorities were very, very nervous about him. And I think the whole point about when he went into Jerusalem uh, at the very the end of his life, you know, he goes into Jerusalem in a sort of procession with all these followers. And this is a man from Galilee, the, the rebel province. And it's his Passover when they had to bring in Roman troops to keep order in the, in the city because it became so such a hotbed of, <laughs> of trouble. And he goes, he goes about smashing up the, the temple and so on. He was, he was being deliberately provocative there, which I think also ties in with this idea of, of Judas being required to betray him. He is on a kind of suicide mission there because it's the only way really to draw attention to it. I mean, one wonders if he'd just don't, gone quietly away and, and uh, taught in the villages and so on, whether anything further would have happened to him. Right, or if he hadn't gone to Jerusalem in the first place. I mean, the, the mere act of going there with a bunch of people and you're trying, if you're from the wrong part of town, or in this case, the wrong part of the country, is a provocative action. Yeah, yeah, and particularly on, on that, at that period, because uh, Passover, all, there was always trouble. That's why they always brought in extra troops. I mean, that was something I found from history, is just, it was always brought in extra troops at Passover because of the potential trouble. It was, it was, you know, and he took a tiny spark to set things off. So that was that was a new light. <laughs> Another uh, element, which is not in the New Testament, but it is, uh, it has been, I think, um, quite widely accepted among historians of Jesus, is his connection to the Essenes. Yes. Now that, now that was also very interesting because now that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls have been transcribed, and I've, I've read the whole lot. <laughs> it's pretty hard going, some of it. Um, the whole business about their medical knowledge. I mean, he had this, he was known primarily as a healer initially, uh, as he went about the country. And it, it was his healing talents that, that people came flocking to, uh, to benefit from. And they're precisely the ones that are documented in the Dead Sea Scrolls about what the Essenes did. Uh, for example, this, this thing about casting out devils, which seems to have been a kind of hypnosis, so that uh, they practiced a kind of hypnosis. And, and in fact, you, you read about Jesus, you know, staring into somebody's eyes and casting out the devils. It's just, we would call it a sort of hypnosis or hypnotherapy, I suppose we call it. Um, and then various other things, mouth-to-mouth oh, -mouth resuscitation is something else they use. Uh, and he's documented as doing something very, sounds very similar to that. So I thought that was fascinating. And, and those missing years before he actually begins his ministry, I'm, I'm sure he must have been amongst the scenes. That's my, my theory, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, 
yes, no, it, it seems very plausible, actually. And of course, we forget uh, what medicine was like in those days. I mean, people, gen you know, they often didn't know whether you were really dead or simply unconscious. They didn't, you know, even now the placebo effect is very strong, and um, which seems fine to me if I'm a patient. If it works, why should I knock it, you know? Um, but it, it is a different environment, and... Uh, it seems plausible that he would have learned healing skills or even just have been such a very charismatic person that the power of his personality was a healing experience. Well, the actual practical things he did were very much what they did. Mm -hmm. Of course, they had, a, they had a, a ritual meal involving bread and wine passed around um, the table, the sort of sacred table. Um, you'll have seen that bit in my scene chapter. And that was that was part of their practice, and it's, it's very much like the Last Supper. Right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other characters in this novel. Um, Miriam herself has a distinct personality. She's not, um, how should we put this, the most biddable young girl. No, no. <laughs> no she rebels against her mother, certainly. She doesn't want to be the sort of stay-at-home, put-upon woman that her mother is. She, she has this this spark of intelligence which her brother encourages. And I wanted her to be like that because if she's going to run away and follow him, she obviously has to be a girl with quite a lot of uh, determination, a feisty kind of girl. And the, the women who did follow him, they were doing something very, very brave because Jewish women at the time were supposed to stay at home under the control of their fathers or husbands. They didn't go wandering about the countryside. So all those women who followed him were doing something really quite remarkable. Um, do you want to talk about her relationship with Yehuda, or um, do you want to talk mostly about him? I think he's the, the third of the, the characters. You mentioned that you have cast him as a friend of Jesus, but he, in the, his personality and his character as they appear in the book are very different from, from the Judas that we know from the Gospels. Because we don't know an awful lot from the Gospels. There's not a great deal about him, except that he was the one who managed the money. Um, that, you know, that was his role amongst the, the group that he, he handled the money. So it seemed to me it was quite likely that he came from some kind of merchant background. So that's why I make his father a, a wealthy merchant, and he's being trained up in the, in the same vein, you know, to take over from his father as a merchant. Now, that was really suggested by the fact that he was the, he held the purse and dealt with the money. Um, and um, it's another, that the, the the name Judas Iscariot has been assumed to mean that it was Judas of um, Iscariot or, or various forms of the, of the name, which suggests that he came from another place. So he was a slight outsider. So I've made him that slight outsider, you know, in the, in the group. But they, they don't exactly like him, the other, the other disciples. Um, and therefore blackened his name afterwards. He's quite a charmer, though. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> well, my, my Yehud is lovely. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> and, of course, Marion falls for him when she's quite small, and he, he comes to love her as he gets older. Um, yes, I mean, that's a very charming part of the story. We won't go into it too much because I don't want to give away too much of your plot. And, in fact, um, 
since we're probably about two-thirds of the way through at this point, I'd like to shift a little bit to your most recent book, which is This Rough Ocean, um, which is based, I understand, on some of your husband's actual ancestors. That's right, yes. Um, it, I discovered the, the background of this story because we'd been looking into the, the family tree. Um, his father had done a certain amount on this because there was another descendant who worked for Burke's Peerage, and he had found out quite a lot about the family. Uh, there is a village called Swinton in Staffordshire, and there's a Swinton Hall, which is actually a Georgian house now, and um, maybe all was pulled down. But um, we got interested in looking at these people and discovered that the, probably the most interesting of them is the John, there are a lot of John Swintons, but the John Swinton who lived in the 17th century, who was a member of Parliament, he, uh, he went to Cambridge and then he went to Gray's Inn. And he was a young member of Parliament who got caught up in the Civil War situation. And he, he, he was a, a, well, what was known as a moderate. In other words, he was, a, he was a parliamentarian and he was opposed to the tyranny of the king. He was equally opposed to the extremists like Cromwell who wanted to kill the king and set up a republic. So he was caught in the middle. And to begin with, the, the moderate party were, were quite successful in Parliament, and they got to the point where they had drawn up conditions for treating with the king, and the king had accepted handing over virtually all his governmental powers to the Houses of Parliament, um, and he had also agreed to the at least the temporary banning of bishops, which was another thing that was demanded by some people. Um, because the bishops at the time, some of them were very corrupt or at least greedy. Um, and he had agreed for a three-year sort of hiatus while all this was considered. And these were going to be the terms for settlement with the king. And that was voted through Parliament. And that, that I deal with that quite early in the book. The day after it was voted through in Parliament, when the people turned up, the men turned up for the House of Commons, they were met at the door of the commons by soldiers commanded by one Colonel Pride. This is Pride's purge. And anyone who had uh, voted to deal with the king and try and reach this settlement for peace was driven away. And the most important ones, about 40 of them, including John Swinton, were arrested and imprisoned. And, of course, subsequently the, the king was tried in the sort of show trial and executed, and things went on into the Commonwealth and so on. But it was the, it was the story of John that I was interested in. He, he remained a moderate, and he, he was true to his beliefs. In the meantime, while he was imprisoned, and he was imprisoned in various places, first in London, then in, in Stafford, and then in Wales, his wife, who had a lot of young children, his wife was my namesake, Anne Swinton, had to go back from Westminster to Staffordshire where their estates were and take over the running of the estates in the middle of this terribly turbulent period where there were uh, dismissed soldiers and um, all sorts of vagabonds and people roaming about the countryside and she had to take on running the estate. Now she wasn't the only one who had to do this, quite a few women in the 17th century did have to do this, but it was interesting that it was in our Swinton family and we know the place and so on. Um, and I wanted to tell this double story. So you'll notice that Mary was told in the first person, 
and so are the Christopher books. But this book has to be in the third person because it was two stories, so I tell it sometimes from John's point of view, sometimes from Anne's point of view. Um, and I, you know, it's, uh, it's a very moving story about what happened to not quite ordinary people, if you're never parliament, you're not quite an ordinary person, but you're not nobility, you're not royalty. But this is what happened to people who got caught up in this situation. I, I only cover about just over a year of their lives. Interestingly, they eventually came back into parliament um, at the time of the restoration, but then he opposed James II, because James II was going the way of, of Charles I and becoming a tyrannical uh, ruler. And he, he was responsible for drawing up the Bill of Exclusion to exclude James II from the, from the uh, throne, which didn't go down well with James II, so he was imprisoned again in his old age. So it was a bit dangerous being a moderate in those days. Yes, it sounds like it. It's actually it's quite interesting. I think, um, you know, there's so much focus on the Tudors uh, in fiction and not nearly as much as there should be on the... Uh, 17th century, and I think that probably there are a lot of people who don't know very much about the English Civil War who could learn a lot um, from this very imaginative and um, enjoyable retelling. Uh, will you share a little bit of this book with us too? Well, what I'll do is I'll read the first bit, which is actually a sort of prologue. What I tried to do with the prologue was to, to give an impression of what the countryside was like at the time, and it's a short prologue, perhaps won't read it all, just over a couple of pages, and then it switches to the story of John and Anne, but I start out by giving this taste of what, what it was like to be alive in the England of that period. So I'll read it as um, this first book. Please, go ahead. The end must surely be near, for the army was marching on London. Death was grown so companionable that it might take its place at any man's table, sitting down like a familiar guest in peasant hut or noble mansion. Death might ride boldly up to any man's door, or slip like a thief through any man's unlatched window. A little after dusk on the last day of November, 1648, a company of troopers rode through snowfall into a meagre hamlet some two days' journey from Westminster their horses slithering in the half-frozen bog, which, even in the best of times, is no more than a strip of dirt track through the forest. Men and horses had their gaze fixed on the gleam of a cooking fire which cast an amber rag of light from the open doorway of the first hovel across this accursed path. The men imagined they could smell meat, though in truth the battered iron cookpot contained nothing more than a thin gruel seasoned with wild garlic. The horses staggered towards a dimly recalled memory of warm stables and hay, though the hamlet possessed nothing more substantial than a ramshackle shed to shelter its one donkey and a spavin's fit-hooked mare sure to die before the winter was out. A dozen cottages huddled in the clearing, hacked free over many generations from this finger of the Wealdon forest. The soil was poor, stony, and threaded through with ancient tree roots, in spring, the plowshares skipped along the surface, leaving the land nearly scratched, and the crops were as wizened as the villagers. A few scraggy sheep grazed on the small common, whose thin grass could not sustain even a solitary cow. 
Troops had passed this way before as the war heaved back and forth across England, but none had troubled to halt in such a destitute place. A woman paused at the door of the first cottage, holding the child she'd just gathered up from the ground. Her hair, thinned by poverty and hunger, framed her head like a halo of dusted cobwebs. Still as a hare scenting the hounds, she froze in terror. A young woman, the bones thrusting against her gaunt cheeks, the child keening in her arms. A man came up behind her, laying his hands on her shoulders as the soldiers reined in and surveyed them. The troopers had parted company with their officers some time ago, in unpleasant circumstances, and wasted no time now. Bring forth all your victuals and goods, demanded a great red-bearded fellow who rode at their head. He drew his sword and swiped off the villager's cap with the point of it. And don't think that you can hide from us. Two of the soldiers slid from their saddles and grabbed the woman, while the rest rode amongst the cottages and rounded up the small huddle of men, women, and children. Not all of them came submissively. One young man slammed his fist into the face of his captor. A knife flickered, swift as an adder. The youth's scream was cut off short as blood spurted over the soldier's boots, soldier's boots, and women began to weep hopelessly. An old crone threw herself down beside the boy with a shrill, wailing cry, but the soldier kicked her aside. The booty the troopers hauled out onto the muddy snow was a pathetic heap of household goods. They picked out a few blankets and threadbare clothes, filled their pockets with stored nuts. As they raked the useless objects aside, their anger grew. It was the red-bearded giant who set fire to the first cottage with a brand pulled from its own hearth. The flames snapped like a hungry animal devouring the frost-dried timber and leapt quickly from cottage to cottage. In their macabre light, the soldiers went about their usual business, leaving the corpses of the men and children where they cut them down, raping the women before slitting their throats and flinging them aside into the collapsing embers of their homes. When the troopers resumed their ride toward London, nothing remained alive in the hamlet, except the old horse, which had kicked down the shed door in terror and fled into the dark, followed by the donkey. And one small boy overlooked in confusion, who crouched in the crimson snow beside his mother, staring into her blank, unseeing eyes. Before the soldiers took shelter for the night, in a great high-rafted barn that had once belonged to an abbey grange, they'd put two more villages to fire and sword. Their saddlebags held a few heavy loaves of dark barley bread and the end of a pitch of bacon, no wider than a man's palm. The third village had yielded one treasure, a four-handled flagon of ale large enough to drown the soldiers' disappointment at the worthless fall in their evening's work. As they squatted, shivering over the fire they'd built out of broken timbers from mangers and stalls, they consoled themselves with the knowledge that London lay but a short ride ahead. London, where any man with a horse and a sword and a pistol in his belt might grow rich and damnation to all officers and men of power. That really captures what poor Anne is going to have to go through in order to get where she's going and the kind of obstacles that John faces. So I do appreciate you reading that. Um, I 
just want to make sure that I have the order of your books more or less right. You have the three contemporary novels that you originally published with Random House. You have mm-hmm. Merriam and Flood, the, the Christoval series, um, and this version of Rough Ocean. So you have quite a, a lot of books for people to look for um, when they realize how much they need to be reading these books. Um, and there's a, there's a, uh, an audio book of Mariam as well. Oh, yes, yes. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, yes, for people who much prefer listening to podcasts and uh, uh, reading books in print, uh, there is an audio book of Mariam, which they should definitely uh, put on their list. So um, you've just published this Rafa Ocean, and you've already mentioned that you have a couple of more Christoval books, as well as the potential sequel for Flood. So I'm not going to ask you what you're working on now, because it sounds like you've got an awful lot Ready. What I will ask you is, where do you find the time? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Working working 24-7, I suppose. (laughs) Well, I'm very happy that you agreed to talk with me today. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Well, I've really enjoyed it, Carolyn. It's, It's very nice to have been asked to take part in this. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie. And today I've been talking with Anne Swinfen, the author of The Testament of Mariam. You can find out more about her and her books at www.annswinfen.com. That's A-N-N-S-W-I-N-F as in Frank E-N. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http colon slash slash newbooksnetwork.com and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.